I think this whole content creation thing was more like a side hobby that interests me. I didn't get into it knowing that I was going to get 100,000 views because, you know, I've made videos before and I uploaded it before I got like two views. So I don't think I was at the point of time out to impress anyone. And that was probably the purest of your intentions in venturing into what you want to do, whether it's content creation or gardening or, you know, baking a cake, anything like if anybody wants to dabble into the world of YouTube, they need to treat YouTube as their day job. And it's not just, a, hey, I'm going to make a video, upload it, and pray it goes to 100,000 views. It's never going to work that way. Mention the name Ginny Boy, and chances are that if you're Malaysian, you would have definitely laughed or cried watching one of the videos from his video channel, Ginny Boy TV. With over 1.14 million subscribers on YouTube, Jin Lim, or better known as Ginny Boy, is a household name in the YouTube scene and Malaysian media industry. Jin first started his career as a radio host on Hits.fm before ultimately leaving radio in 2012 to go full-time to work on his YouTube channel, Ginny Boy TV. And since then, Ginny Boy TV went from a two-man YouTube channel producing short videos, parodies, and sketches to a fully creative and talent agency creating campaigns for corporate clients. And in our chat with Jin today, we speak to him about his YouTube journey and get an exclusive insight into his creative process. Hi, this is Janice. And I'm Sarah N. And we're your hosts for Explore This, a podcast for the modern-day working professional. Each week, we explore actionable insights on how you can thrive personally and professionally. Jin, you are the OG of the Malaysian YouTube scene and no stranger to most Malaysians who have laughed and cried watching your hilarious and heartfelt videos on Ginny Boy TV. We're so happy to have you today. Welcome to the Explore This Podcast. Thank you. I've been around all long enough to be old. Yes, it kind of is obvious that I've been doing this for quite a while. <laughs> I think I've been in the entertainment industry for almost 15 to 16 years right now, but I think like people don't realize that. They always think that I'm still young, but I don't think I am. Yeah, I'm not. Well, you certainly don't you look, look young. Oh, you, got, you girls are being nice. I just put on extra makeup today for the show. So yeah. <laughs> it's, it's paying off. It's paying off. For those of our listeners who may not have heard of you, can you just give a brief introduction of yourself and maybe one lesser known fact that you can share with our audience? My name is Jin. People don't know me much as Jin. They know me as Ginny Boy. It, it was just this nickname that I, I used to make a YouTube channel. And for some reason, I, I decided to dabble into YouTube and make some videos because it was actually my interest. I, I loved doing photography when I was a lot younger. I think like when I was working, whatever money I had saved up, I would buy myself a really expensive camera so that I could take really amazing pictures of myself uh, or, or pictures of concerts. I love taking pictures of concerts. And that's made me venture into like, you know, videography and stuff like that. And I started a YouTube channel, made films, the YouTube channel kind of exploded and it kind of took off on its own and, and it became a business. Today, I'm running two businesses. I run two companies, managing social media and also doing video production and also running a YouTube channel at the same time. For the long-windedness that you just heard and you don't understand... I'm a YouTuber. That's it. And in this day and age, Jin, you refer to yourself as a YouTuber, something that we all know what it means now. But back when you first started in 2012, the landscape was presumably so incredibly different. Being a YouTuber now can be seen as an extremely, I don't know, lucrative career. Yeah. And um, yeah, we'd love to hear from you, right? What prompted you to take this leap of faith to leave radio after eight years to pursue being a YouTuber as a full-time career? 
Oh, wow. You know that I was in radio for eight years. Well done. Uh, my job was to write commercials for the radio announcers to basically, you know, voice on air. And I knew I wanted to do radio part-time because I was under the impression that radio would pay well. So somebody kind of messed up somewhere and people knew that I wanted to do radio part-time. Jake Van came up to me and said, hey, do you want to be a radio DJ? And I'm like, I don't know. It's like, it's a yes or no question. And I'm like, yeah, sure. And I, I think that's how I got started in radio. Like for someone to go uh, on radio, you needed to do training for about like, I don't know, two months, three months. I did training for one week and I was on air the next week. So coming back to the question of then, what prompted you to take that leap of faith to leave after being so familiar in the radio industry? I got bored. <laughs> Enough um, of gotcha calls, yeah? <laughs> yeah, I, yeah. I've probably done like 3,000 gotcha calls. I don't think people, people noticed that. It was too routine and it was nothing new to look forward to every day. I was offered to go on the morning crew show. So the morning crew show, it's more of like uh, in, in the corporate world, it's like climbing up the top ladder, being the CEO and stuff like that. So it pays well, not going to lie. And of course, like when you see the pay being offered to you was so good, you'd be like, oh, okay, I don't mind. At a point in time, just before the morning crew, the YouTube channel just blew up. I think they wanted to kind of leverage on the YouTube popularity that was booming at that point in time. Because like, I remember I was never allowed to say Ginny Boy on radio, but when they popped me into the morning show and all of a sudden, you know, it, it was the Ian and Ginny Boy show or Ryan and Jin or Ian and Ginny Boy. So, and they positioned me as the YouTube star. So I, I did the morning show for about like uh, three years. Well, I don't think the morning show was made for me. I didn't like waking up at 4.30 in the morning, going to the studio by 5.30, going on air at 6 to 10, then doing gotcha calls from like 10, like preparing for the next day's show doing it for until like 2, 3 p.m. And then, you know, you go back, you you can't go out because you got to like really prepare yourself to sleep and wake up the next morning. So, I mean, it was fun initially in the beginning, but I think like when you have to creatively be funny every day for 365 days a year, it gets very tiring. So at the same time, the YouTube channel was exploding. So we did have collaborations with hits and we made some big bangers that got like 32 million views on YouTube. It, it didn't stop me from making videos. It didn't stop the growth of my channel. But I think like it came to a point of time where I kind of saw an opportunity to take a leap of faith to see whether uh, YouTube could make money and whether I can make a business out of it. I had some money saved up, but you know enough for me to last for about six months. So I told my boss when I left, like, hey, if I go bankrupt in six months, can I just come back and have my job back? And he's like, yeah, yeah, call me. So um, I left to pursue YouTube full time to see how far I could take uh, the whole YouTube business because. I, I had like a lot of conversations with friends in the States who were actually YouTubers and they kind of told me the bigger picture of it and how they made money on YouTube. And for me, it was like, oh, okay, I could do that, but I think I could do more because at that point of time, nobody else in Malaysia were doing it. So I feel like if you are the first to do it, you might as well just go out there and and just try to milk it all. But I was wrong. <laughs> like the, the fact that you're the first person to do it even more people will be really skeptical of what you're trying to do because like there's no benchmark to compare you to. So yeah, it was tough. But I think like after about six months, the business kind of grew and it has been uphill since then. Mm, so actually, as you mentioned, you left your radio career and that was one that paid you really well. Even though yeah. you know morning gotcha calls might not be the most exciting thing, it was still something that provided you a bit of stability. So giving that up to go into YouTube full-time, especially being the sort of first mover or pioneer in that scene, that comes with a lot of uncertainties. What was that journey like for you and Ruben when you both started? I think this was back in 2012, right? What was the whole landscape like when it came to monetization and, and how did you both navigate this whole journey? 
So I think like when YouTube first started, there was no monetization offering from YouTube themselves because I don't think Malaysia was a part of the whole partnership program. And then what we had to do was we had to have like a, a network in the states sign us up under their wing, and they gave us the partnership program, which was great. When they gave us the partnership program, which you saw on YouTube, was the cream of the crop. We're like, yay! When you get a partnership program, it's a huge deal. You're gonna earn money, and we're like, yeah, you know, we're gonna be millionaires. I didn't pay well. I don't think like uh, it. Did, yeah, it doesn't pay well at all. I mean, if you get a million views on YouTube, you're probably getting about like what three thousand USD. And that's like a twelve thousand ringgit, around there, plus minus. But then you got to take into account that like you got to split it with another person, mm-hmm. and not every video you upload is going to be a million. So it was very uncertain to basically sustain on just making videos, and not to mention that when when we make videos, I had to invest in camera equipment, pay people some money. Some like when we first started, we were like begging people, "Can I just pay you fifty bucks to work for me for like three days?" <laughs> I mean, those people did it for us because they all enjoyed the journey anyway to be a part of it. So I think initially it was uh, as people think it's like, "Oh, it's very luxurious." No, it's not. I think. I make more money from video production, commercial deals, and brand integration versus the adsense that I get on YouTube. But if I were to get like consistently 10 million views on every video, then yeah, I'll be rich. But no. So on the topic of finding your creative spark and what your creative process would look like, right? The content that you produce are so wide ranging in terms of the topic as well as categories from comedy skits to current issues on pandemic, fake news, music video parodies, or even more serious short film series and even cartoons. Yeah. So we'd like to hear where or what do you usually draw inspiration from? And what does that creative process from the ideation to execution look like? YouTubers have a very quick turnaround point. Uh, YouTubers leverage very much on the current issues uh, that are going on the internet uh, and what people are talking about in order to get views. It's not an unknown strategy. It's a known strategy. The thing is, like when you see something happen, you want to have a really quick turnaround and all these inspirations just come to you like that. The World Wide Web, there's so many things happening. And when something big happens, you just basically take that as more of like, a, not inspiration, more of like a guy like, hey, you know, everybody's talking about this. Okay, let's make fun of it. I guess that's where it starts. But like, I think it started from then. And I think at, at one point of time, we drew a lot of inspiration from 9Gag as well, because 9Gag used to be the best place at memes. All these comic memes were a huge thing back then. They are still now. I would have probably read a lot of comics and situations about friends and stuff like that. And I've hardly saw any videos of that kind of scenario. So for me, it was like, what if I took that as a topic at hand and basically do it in the Malaysian way? So I did that. So I think the first video I made was about this guy trying to go and buy a camera. It's called Awing, Malaysia's number one salesman. So that was written based on my own experience buying a camera going to three different shops, giving me three different prices, only to realize that all three shops were owned by the same person. <laughs> so yeah, it's, it's a funny story. So I think like uh, most of the stories that I, I, I write or I do on the channel are very much personal uh, of me growing up as a kid or going through life as an individual, going through college. Uh, all the stories that we write are very much personal of what we've gone through. And that's why it's a little bit more relatable to people because I tend to think that I went through all these problems alone, but when I made them into films, a lot of people tend to think like, oh, I went through this too. So I was like, ah, cool. Like a simple thought that I have is being shared by millions. So that's quite interesting. So a lot of the things you talk about are related to current issues, you know, what's happening, but also in terms of things like TikTok and there are a lot of 
Gen Z related trends that sad to say, I think three of us are not within that same category. So I'm just curious, like, how do you stay relevant within that generation and category of people? Because I do realize that your videos somehow have this superpower of reaching people of all ages from Gen Z's all the way to like my grandma and and my grandpa. Like they all relate to it. They all find it funny. So how do you keep your video content relevant to people of different generations? To be honest, I don't know. (laughs) I don't even know how to answer that question. The only difference between TikTok, Instagram, YouTube, and stuff like that, the only difference between all these things is how the content is being presented. At the end of the day, all the content is the same. Like all content is supposed to, you know, spark an emotional reaction from someone. Will they make you laugh? Will they make you cry? Will it hit a soft spot at you? Would it encourage you to create a, an action? So I feel like although a lot of people tend to be like, oh no, I can't stand TikTokers right now. At the end of the day, they're still content creators. Like I would write a short film about my relationship with my mom. But the TikTokers will do that in a dance video, which is completely the same message, but being presented in a different way. It, it, it is the same when I started YouTube as well. When I started doing short films on my channel, people are like wondering, wow, did you hire a production team to do this? Like, no, I just used the camera and like a microphone using my left hand to, to like point the microphone at the person versus a production company that spends half a million to do what I do. So I was looked at as the market spoiler. The production houses were passing comments and the comments got to me saying that, you know, people like us, we were spoiling the market. We were making fun of the ways filmmaking is supposed to be. All of a sudden, we brought the threshold down, a barrier of entry to filmmaking to an all new low. Filmmaking is supposed to be like a really prestigious industry where like directors and and anyone can only go in and make amazing films that goes in cinema. But then you have this bunch of jokers who comes in and shoot here, shoot there, buys a DSLR camera and calls themselves filmmakers and directors. You know what I mean? So yeah, I was that. I know what a director was, but I had no idea what a producer was. I had no idea what the term assistant director was. I had no idea what a gaffer was. I was clueless to every terminology of the production world. But for some reason, we were kind of doing the same thing as what the production houses were doing. We were creating content. But the difference was the production houses were creating commercials. We were creating stories. And that was my selling point to brands. Is like, do you want the audience to remember your brand because it's an ad or do you want them to relate to a story and remember your brand? And that was my pitch to all of the brands that I worked with. That's incredible. And I also love how your storytelling evoked these sort of emotions of nostalgia, familiarity with everything that you demonstrate in your videos. It's all via the inspiration and your personal experiences. And I also love how you cast your own mom into some of your videos. How did that come about? I had no budget to hire anybody else. She just did it for free. So yeah, literally, that's how it started. I think like the first few videos that we had, like the first video I did, which was the Awing one, I spent like 200 bucks and that's for lunch for everybody who was involved in it. Everybody just volunteered to be a part of it. And the first year, most of the videos, everybody just showed up on set and, and they did it for free because it was something new. For some of them, or for most of them who were a part of it, it allowed them to grow in terms of their followings or Twitter followings or their Instagram followings or even their YouTube channel. For some reason, if we we were to work with someone and had an actor or an actress star in a video, you know, they would kind of accumulate some sort of following because of that film. Uh, maybe they're funny, maybe they're handsome, maybe they're pretty. And because of that, you know, that allowed them to be casted into other 
projects as well, whether it's a commercial or a film. Some of them even were casted in movies. I think Marianne that we worked with initially, she got casted to be in a movie called Ola Bola, and that was amazing. So it's, I mean, for me, it was initially in the starts of YouTube. I was very hopeful, very positive, saying that, oh my gosh, you know, now everybody can have an equal chance in being in front of the camera, showing what they can do. Like Dennis, you know, he's a dancer. Now hundreds and thousands of people can be watching him dance and stuff like that. He doesn't necessarily need to fight for a spot on mainstream TV. So it was really cool. The community spirit was amazing, and I think that was what drew me or pushed me to continue making videos, and including everyone to be a part of it. If you watch the videos, yes, you do see myself and Ruben, but like most of the time, the lead actors will be somebody else, and that's what I loved. I didn't really care about uh, being in front of the camera and getting all the attention and stuff like that. But like for me, I, I loved creating stories. One of the, my favorite stories that I wrote、uh, was called Unfold. And I, I wrote it after I met Marian for the first time. I met her at an event. I was like, "Oh my God, you kind of look like a character that I can imagine in my head, and that I can write." And I wrote a story. I pitched it to her, and she liked it. And next thing you know, we were、uh, filming it. And when we released it, people people liked it. They could relate. And then next thing you know, we were flying to Melbourne to film the second part of it. So, you see, all these things are just amazing because. People believed in the stories that we were telling, so I was very happy when it first started. Yeah, I, I watched Unfold, and I really, really loved it.、Um, oh, thank you. Yeah, I also heard in another podcast that you actually confessed to loving cheesy rom coms and yeah, <laughs> romantic flicks, chick flicks. <laughs> yeah, even until today, I mean, who wants to watch like a film that's so dark and deep and basically has no conspiracy theories? I'd like a simple film. I think like、uh, last month、uh, I was binging on Hugh Grant, so I was like watching all of Hugh Grant's movies just again, and like ah, I, I understand this so much better now as an adult. Sad to say, like some of my friends were even introducing some of his movies, music and lyrics, and I haven't watched that before. And I watched it, I was like, it's so simple, and I love all these type of films, and I love stories. When I was a kid, I was a hopeless romantic, and I've always, <laughs> and I've always lived in the realms of oh, what if. This could happen, but it never does because I never make the first move. So you know that, and that's where one person dreams a lot, and that's where I write all of my dreams. We love that. I mean, <laughs> it's quite magical to see your dreams. I can imagine, right, as a content creator, seeing your dreams play out on the screen and having it told and kind of resonating with different people for different reasons. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I've been doing this for ten years. Sometimes I tend to forget. But like when I have conversations with people like your, such as yourselves, and you tell me how it how you liked it, I'm like, oh, okay, cool. I gotta kind of rewind and step back a bit and 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 remind myself that you know the films that I make do impact some people. Because like just, it's very easy to get lost in the moment when you're running a business, and you're just making films just because you need to, and then you you basically、uh, run into kind of like a, a a dead end where do my films even matter anymore? You know what I mean? Like you know, yeah, I still get the hundred thousand views, but do they still matter? I don't get people coming up to me to tell me that they like my films and stuff. So yeah, <laughs> it's 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 nice once in a while to get this reminder. Yeah, for sure. I mean, as a Malaysian living in Hong Kong right now. I do miss home so much. I haven't been home in about a year and a half since I left home, basically. So you know, every time I tune into one of the Ginny Boy videos, and <laughs> I hear that familiar Malaysian accent, especially all the pandemic-related kind of humorous videos, it really makes me chuckle because it just reminds me of home and all of these people. And you know, your friends as well, like Celine、uh, in your videos, and yeah, yeah, it's just great. Celine's awesome. She's like so her. Her range of of characters is so amazing. I love working with Celine. Every time we have like a role that's for a female and we need her to be like super loud and crazy, well, <laughs> Celine's on the top of our head. 
or when we first started, we didn't choose actors based on their followings because none of us had followings. You know, none of us had like any popularity status and, and whatever not. We just had a lot of people who were eager to be in front of the screen and and really perform. And that that is the best part about uh, YouTube because anybody can do it. Actually, kind of touching on filming and we we're talking about the creative process as well, right? And right now, being in the midst of a pandemic, I'm sure you would have had to pivot or adapt your way of working in some way, especially for production companies. I would imagine the strict SOP restrictions around movement, especially in the beginning parts of this year and even the whole of last year as well, meant maybe some cancelled projects and really big shifts in how you guys manage the way you film and mobility and everything. So could you maybe share with our audience, what was that experience like, especially in the early days of the pandemic? And how did you sort of keep the creative flow going, kept the momentum going, even in the midst of all of these uncertainties? Oh, wow. I think like uh, the pandemic was a very big test to (laughs) not to both me as a content creator and also a business owner. I think like coming into 2020 last year, I think we were kind of on a high. We locked down some really big projects. I think we started the year with some pretty big films. And it was cool. You know, we worked with, uh, there was one film we worked with Celine and, and one one film that we worked with Soam Jen. And, you know, it started off really great. And we had a few other projects that were lined up for the rest of the year as well. And then when the pandemic hit, I don't think we understood what, the pandemic was we like locked down everybody was like yay you know <laughs> we get like a two-week holiday you know what i mean no need to work like, and, and but like for me it was a bit of me was like ah can i get that kind of breathing space because everybody has to stop work right so so for me i think like the first two weeks wasn't really that bad but from the third week was where it got a little bit scary i think we had brands who we had to shoot films for who had to put their project on hold and then when the next month came and the lockdown extended, I remember there was one point of time where I was waking up to that whole entire week was me getting calls of how clients are just going to pull out and pull out and pull out and pull out. I'm sorry, this will be KIV until further notice and stuff like that. And I'm like, oh, shit. Okay. And like for me, it's like I'm looking at, I'm looking at the company bank account and like, okay, it's only been a month. But, you know, how am I going to sustain the company if this goes on for like, you know, another three months? And for me, I was like, yeah, okay, no problem. Let's not worry too much about it because I think like the company would be able to operate for one year without any clients. So I've kind of set it that way. So when we got into the pandemic, uh, the first thing I had to do was reassure the, the employees that even if we if the, the lockdown goes down for a year, you guys will still have a job. I think you guys will still have a job for about two years. So the, the reserves are good enough for you to, to still have a job, you know? When the lockdown started extending a lot longer, uh, that's where it got a bit scary because, you know, I remember that we lost almost like uh, close to about a million to about a million plus or more of guaranteed revenues for the year when we signed stuff. And like, okay, that's, that, that was, that's unfortunate. So it, I remember like that whole week of getting phone calls of rejection and it got a bit tough because we couldn't shoot. Mm. So I think that's probably the hardest time of my life running a business. I was really, really stressed out. But what we did was, I think we just sat down with the entire team to talk about what we can do and what we can't do. So, all right. If we always used to go out with a team of 40, 50 people to shoot a great film, let's just go back to the basics. Let's just go out and shoot with our phones. And we started doing a lot of stuff that were very related to the pandemic. Again, we went back to the basics of how it first started. You know, when somebody's talking about something in the news, we jump on it. When they announced that only the head of house, the Katoa Ruma, was allowed to go out to buy groceries, we wrote a film about it. 
And then when they said that you're supposed to work from home, and a lot of people were releasing memes about how the types of people who are working from home, we wrote a film about it. Then we kind of saw that momentum. So what I did was when we wrote all these films, I just went back to all the clients and I knocked on the doors and look, you're not spending your money anywhere. Spend it in this video because we found a way to make this happen. And the clients were like, yeah, why not? And that's where I realized that if you don't knock on the door and look for opportunities, they're not going to come back at you. So that, that's where I kind of regrouped, talked to my wife because she runs the uh, social media agency side of it. So we went back to all of our clients and said, look, we know you that you guys need to get your stuff out there. Why not just use social media influencers and, and content creators? Like the budget that you are using to make one film, use it to hire 20 content creators. You get 20 pieces of content that you can repurpose on your platform. And that's how we kind of managed to pivot around the pandemic when we were in the lockdowns. And so did we do bad during the pandemic? Initially, it was scary, but I think we kind of thrived during the pandemic. I'm really proud of the team because they were like on the same page of like, okay, let's just hustle even though we're at home. We've been working from home for the past two years, actually, come to think about it. But uh, come December, we are moving into a new office. We got a bigger office. We've expanded the team. And coming out of this pandemic, I was like, oh, wow, you know, I'm really glad to, to have been able to work together with the team to go through this and been able to go out and do what you normally don't do, knock on doors, pitch ideas, give clients solutions. It did affect me badly because I was really stressed out. Yes. But I think like when in times of desperation, that's where you kind of like reach your hand out to your teammates and ask them, hey, what can we do? And when you listen uh, and people give ideas, that's where you'd be like, oh, okay, that could work. And then, you know, it kind of works somehow. <laughs> it's so incredible to hear how your team has really just stuck together. But more importantly, I love that that piece about going back to basics, right? Yeah. Recognizing that great stories can still be told without 50 crew members, without yeah. most expensive camera and video equipment, but just kind of really realizing that, wow, th this tiny little device here is actually incredibly powerful to still make storytelling equally real and relevant. Yeah, I, rem I remember that, uh, that film that we wrote, the Kato Ruma one. I mean, you all don't realize, but we actually sent four to five people out to film the scenes for us. It's all our team members. All they had to do was just wear a glove to make believe that it's one person. And, you know, some went to Tesco, some went to Giant, some went to Jaya Grocer. And then we just basically got all the footages together and, and, and cut it into one. That was some really fun times. I really enjoyed that. I won't lie. At that point in time where we were creating content and people were talking about it. And it gave me that sense of nostalgia, like how you mentioned, sense of nostalgia. It gave me that sense of nostalgia. Like, oh, wow, you know, really making content really easy. Then we made, and then back to collaboration where we got everybody to film themselves given a theme and we put everything together and we made a video. We were releasing videos that were shot vertically on YouTube. Who would have done that? Like we're used to watching 16 by nine videos, HD videos. That's a nine by 16, but people liked it. So I was just very grateful that people actually shared it and it got a lot of views. For me, that, that's where I realized that you're only capable to what you think you are capable of. If you think that that's not going to work, it's because you think it's not going to work. It doesn't mean it's not going to work. So that's what I've learned from the pandemic. And until you actually give it a shot, like you said, your team went out, you, you went out and knock on doors, right? Yeah. Um, until you did that, you would not have known that there are still opportunities to thrive through pivoting and learning how to be creative given the circumstances that were thrown at you that was completely out of your control. Yeah, I think the main reason why I started knocking on doors is because I studied marketing. 
when times are bad or when the economic situation is at its worst, it doesn't mean that you don't spend more money to advertise. It's where you should spend the most money. And just because you spend the most money doesn't mean that you need to get the most returns just because of your investment. When times are bad, you need to spend as much money as you can to remind people that, hey, you're still here. So when the economy gets better, these people, aha, I'll have you at the top of mind. So I guess maybe that's my marketing background that kind of stuck with me. So Jin, we have to ask you, right, behind all this glitz and glamour of the YouTuber life that now everyone aspires to perhaps be, we're sure that there are also all these challenges and hurdles. And you spoke about so many specific to the pandemic. But can you speak a little bit more about how a failure or challenge has set you up later for success? Or even do you have a favorite failure of yours? To be honest, I don't know how to answer the question, not because I'm successful. And if you were to twist that question around, oh, how do you measure success? And I remember talking about this in all my interviews. I was like, I don't really measure success because if success is measurable, then you're not really putting yourself up to the challenge. If you can measure your level of success, it means that you're not going to push yourself more. It's like, you're going to like, oh, okay, I'm successful already. That's it. I think everything that I do or every year that I go through, there would be things that I think I would wish I've done better. I don't think like everything that I do is successful or just because I got a million views, it's successful. There are a lot of things that I have to look into from the front of it. It's successful, but you know, behind the scenes, did we pay everybody enough? Did we take care of all the actors enough? Did we take care of all the, the welfare of the workers enough? Is our staff compensated enough? So these are the common questions that I kind of would ask myself. Like when we finish a film and, and it doesn't do well, and my team just like, oh, it didn't do well. And I know how it feels when you've worked so hard in the film and you were expecting it to hit a million. Then, you know, oh, you hit half a million. Oh, man, I hate this. This video sucks. You know, it's a failure. <laughs> you tend to forget that you got half a million views. And um, I think I, I, it took me a while, but I, I've grown out of that. But you know, when my team members say like, oh, you know, it's kind of doing very bad. I was like, no, hey, man. You know, even if 30,000 people watch the film, if it's 30,000 views, that's a stadium of people. That's more than a Taylor Swift concert in Malaysia. But you've managed to get 30,000 people to watch this. So it's all about mindset and perspective of how you look at it. That's where I've learned to come out, on ev- out of every project thinking that I've not done something enough to make it like a foolproof success. We just came out of filming a couple of commercials for a brand and like there were so many things that we were not used to. And instead of just blaming everyone for everything, obviously all of us would get really frustrated because, you know, we never saw this before. And, and out there, we just sit down and our team members were like, you know what? This is a really, really expensive lesson, but it's a good lesson to learn. It's the perspective of it. So that's how, what, what we've learned to, to kind of take away from every project. I'm happy that my team uh, works the way they do right now. I don't think I'll be able to achieve what I have today without my team. I like how you emphasize the fact that, you know, it's all about how you look at it. Sometimes it's not failure. Sometimes it's a learning, like what my dad always tells me, you know, sometimes in life you win and sometimes you learn. So you don't always lose. There's always something to learn out of every seemingly insurmountable challenge, right? Yeah. If you want to say the biggest failure, it's a joke. I uploaded my SPM results on Facebook. It could teach Recently. my daughter. It could teach my daughter the alphabet. It's A B C D E F G. Everything. It was there. <laughs> yeah, I uploaded it because, because like, uh, if a guy with such horrible SPM results could be where I am today, imagine if that person had like seven A's. You know what I mean? But at the same time, I had friends who were like Cambridge students. You know, really top A one, messaging me and telling me, "Oh, I love your films." But when I was in high school, I loved your grades. I'm like, you know, but they love my films. 
it's a different feeling altogether. <laughs> so it's perspective. You know what I mean? You may not be great at studies, but you could be great at something else. I'm really lucky that I was able to turn my interest and hobby into a business. I'm not going to say filmmaking is my passion. It was just my interest. Then I guess for the lack of a better word, it became my passion. But yeah, biggest failure is my SPM results. <laughs> so is it safe for me to assume that you're not going to be an Asian tiger dad to your daughters? <laughs> no, not. I don't think I'm going to bring my daughter up like how I was brought up by my mom. I'm not saying that my mom brought me up bad, but my mom's a government school teacher. The reason why she worked like four or five jobs just to send me to a private school because she thought that the local government school education system was bad. So she only wanted the best. So Jin, you know, to have you on this episode today, we cannot not address the topic of internet trolls. <laughs> so we do want to ask you as a media personality or some would call an influencer, a lot of what you would do requires you to put yourself out there quite publicly. You will receive compliments, praises, but possibly criticisms too. So how do you normally deal with internet trolls and even keyboard warriors, especially in an era that we live in today where there's a lot of cancel culture that happens? Oh, cancel culture. Um, I think like initially when I first started this whole career, I think it it's new and it obviously affected me because like, you know, you, you get like 200 people saying, oh, great video. And then one person is like, oh my God, this is like a low quality kind of nonsense kind of thing. And, you know, they would say something bad and it would hit me. But I think like after a while, you will kind of see past all these things as you grow older. So the stages of YouTubing or the stages of getting famous in this industry is like all of a sudden you get that fame and all of a sudden you get that attention and you'd be like, oh my God, it feels great. All of a sudden, you get a lot of things that you wouldn't expect to get. Free trips, free this. You get to meet a lot of different people. When that becomes like a norm to you already, then you start paying attention to the other things, like the, the bad things. And then that's where you'd be like, oh, why do people hate me? And then because you're a role model or a public figure, you always want everyone to like you. And the truth of the matter is nobody will ever be able to grasp this concept. No, not everyone will be able to like you. You know what I mean? They'll be like, do you like durian? Yeah. Do, do I like durian? Yeah. You ask 10 friends, there will be at least that one person who hates durian. You know what I mean? And he doesn't have to be a white boy. For me, initially, it did. It was like, oh man, why does this guy don't like me? And then you sit down, you think about it. But if it's a constructive criticism about my work, then yeah, you, you will understand it. But when one person just leaves a comment like, cringe, you'd be like, oh, then you know, it sometimes gets you. You'd be like, oh, why was it cringe? Huh? What did the... Then you rewatch the whole film. Like, what about the film that's cringe? You know what I mean? And then suddenly you'd be in denial. But I think after a while, I kind of grew out of it because, you know, I grew older. I grew a lot more mature. Being in front of the camera is great. Being known, going around, people coming up to me, asking me for photos, telling me that, you know, our films inspire them. It's an amazing feeling to be appreciated, to be wanted, you know, to be talked about. But I think like uh, as I grow older, I just, <laughs> I kind of want my own privacy <laughs> uh, a lot more. But people still come to me and talk to me about like, you know, oh, you know, it's Jin. Jin is the YouTuber. I don't think people realize that, but I've shied away from the camera to number one, focus more on the business. That's for sure. Because you can't be in front of the camera and run a business and wear multiple hats because you'll stress yourself out. But just to give an advice to people who want to be in this industry, it's like all these trolls are just people who just have nothing else better to do. And no matter how much effort these people go through to get what you are getting, your life that you're portraying, it's going to be a lot harder for them. That's why they will just take the easy way out and say, 
Yeah, because like, you're an influencer. Well, of course, like, you'll get all this free stuff. You will have all these friends coming up. I mean, not it doesn't only happen within like uh, fans or people commenting on YouTube. Even your own friends, you know, they like out of nowhere, like when I don't even say a thing, like throughout dinner, I'll be the most quiet person and they'll be talking about Let's say, for example, a brand new phone. You know, like wow, this Samsung just released a brand new phone, uh, But Jin, it's a whole You get for free. You know, you know they will talk about oh, what is that seven thousand bucks, ah? Yeah, but Jin gave for free, uh, You know, it's like, it's like I'm like okay, uh, okay. But like, what did I do in order to be labeled that? You don't just get it through the comment section online. You get it amongst your friends and your circles as well. It gets very annoying sometimes, but I've learned to live with it. I live a very private life. Whatever you see on Instagram, it's probably 10% of what, what I really am. And the other 90%, I'd rather keep it to myself and enjoy on my own. There are a lot of things that I do that I enjoy that I don't really share with the public. And that's the beauty of the other side that you live outside of this content creator, YouTuber label that people otherwise know you as. Yeah, because you get to choose what you want to share on social media. You don't necessarily have to share every single thing on social media. And at the end of the day, I, I remember reading this. You share the best version of you on social media. I grew tired of that. I was in that position where, oh, I'm going to take a picture. All right, oh, let's cover my zits. All right, let's comb my hair a little bit. All right, let's put on some Yeezys because Yeezys are, are in trend. All right, make sure you take a wide shot again. Okay? Make sure you see the Yeezys because they're going to get a lot of likes on Instagram. And it's just like, you put the best version of yourself on your feed. And then after a while, it gets really, really tiring. To those who really take the effort to continuously do and look good all the time, I commend them. It's very hard to do. I really have to really put my hats off to all these people who could do it for years. It definitely takes a lot of effort. I mean, not that I can speak from experience, but for people that put in a lot of effort to just demonstrate their highlight reels on Instagram. Yeah, oh, yeah. definitely kudos to them for that. <laughs> <laughs> So on that note, we do have to ask you on some actionable advice along the topic of the Explore This podcast. So we want our listeners to walk away with something that they can learn from your personal experiences. And so Jin, can you share with us, for those who might want to explore this content creation, YouTuber, full-time, or even as a venture on the side, what advice would you give to someone who wants to embark on this path? Mm. Don't do it. <laughs> <laughs> Bet you didn't um, see that coming. <laughs> I think like uh, how I started was very simple. I think this whole content creation thing was more of like a side hobby that interests me. I didn't get into it knowing that I was going to get 100,000 views because, you know, I've made videos before and I uploaded it before. I got like two views. So I don't think I was at the point of time out to impress anyone. And that was probably the purest of your intentions in venturing into what you want to do, whether it's content creation or gardening or, you know, baking a cake, anything. Like. If anybody wants to dabble into the world of YouTube, they need to treat YouTube as their day job. And it's not just, a, hey, I'm going to make a video, upload it and pray it goes to 100,000 views. It's never going to work that way. It took me seven years to get my first 100,000 views. And are you going to continuously do it until you reach that goal of getting like a lot of views? Then trust me, when you hit your first 100,000 views, You'll wake up like, all right, I got 100,000 views. And after that, that short-lived moment will be probably at most six minutes. And after that, you'll be like, oh, okay. You'll be looking around and like, oh, what do I do now? You know? My advice to people who want to venture into this industry is, first, ask yourself why you want to get into it. 
the only reason why you want to get into YouTube is because you know that when you are famous, you're gonna get a lot of perks. Yes, there is some truth to it, but the, are the perks gonna be like million dollar, like you know, mansions and whatever, not this and that? Maybe, but is it as easy as getting your first million views and then you're sorted for life? No, it's not. It's tough. Once you get your first million views, that's where the stress starts. You need to sustain and continuously make yourself relevant. <laughs> So it's tough. It's very tough. So if you're willing for that to be a challenge to you, then do it. But you need to be really honest with yourself. If you're doing it for like 10 years and you don't even get that amount of views that your goals have been set to, then it's okay for you to kind of step back and say, okay, maybe this thing is not for me. You know, reflecting on that point you said earlier, think about why you're doing what you want to do. Because at the early stages, especially, not everyone gets a million views in their first video. Sometimes it takes you 10 videos to hit a million, sometimes even 50. So it's definitely going to be a labor of love when yeah. it comes to all these different ventures, right? Yeah. And furthermore, so many people are saying that they want to be YouTubers. So it's mm. so it's going to be so competitive. Unless, of course, in the whole wide world, only one fellow say he wants to be a YouTuber and nobody else wants to be a YouTuber. He has a bigger chance to upload something on YouTube and go viral. But like everybody now wants all the kids. I'm, I'm so sorry to have created this some sort of a career that people in school want to aspire, aspire to. to be. Yeah. So it's like... Is there even a cost to becoming a YouTuber? I don't think so. But at, like, at the end of the day, education is very important. But when you're really passionate about something, you will go all the way out to learn it, even though you cannot afford it. So I learned all there is to know about photography and videography from YouTube. I did not go to any school. I did not go to any courses. I could not afford to go into any course. I think a lot of people tend to always be like, look, man, like, I go to forums. People say that, oh, look at Jenny boy. He's uh, uh, born with a silver spoon in his mouth. He's probably rich. That's why he could afford all these camera gears and all these hot girls to be in his film. I don't think people realize that. I think my mom had to take a loan to send me to Australia to study just because one bloody subject was not offered here in Malaysia. And I had to take that subject in order for me to graduate. Whatever I have today is a lot of hard work. If you put your mind away and you work really, really hard, you will get to where you dream to be. It will take a while, but you will eventually get there. Definitely wise words and very well said, Jin. And on that note, as we're wrapping up this episode, we'd like to ask you, and this might catch you off guard again, what is one thing that you would love to explore more of? I actually want to do a lot more of acting. I know it sounds very like cheesy, but I have made so many films but I've always wondered, oh, what if I did acting? I want to act in like a drama series or like a movie or I, I don't know. What would it be like if I were given an opportunity to be in Hollywood? After watching Shang-Chi, you see Michelle Yeoh, you see Ronnie Chang, and you see all these Malaysians who are being this, where you'd be like, oh, you know, maybe I got a chance. You see, it's the same thing. It's there the is hope. Thing. <laughs> it's the same thing, like how people see me do YouTube and think, oh, maybe I got a chance. Because you see, look at, look at Jin. He's not that handsome, also, but he's got a million views. I'm better looking than him. So, you know, I, I think I have a better chance. So, you know, it's that, that feeling that you get watching other people excel in and it gives you inspiration to kind of like dream. Other than that, I want to be a good parent. I want to bring my kids up and make sure that they get whatever they, what I didn't get as a kid and make sure that they would be well taken care of whether I'm here or not. 
I know I guess this sounds really deep and stuff like that, but I feel like uh, I've been working really hard uh, and not kind of paying attention to my own well-being. So that is what I want to do moving forward and trust my team to run my business for me and do things that I want to do, whether it involves money or not. <laughs> I know like the, like the next few projects that I'm going to be a part of, it doesn't pay anything close to what I would be able to get washing plates in a restaurant or something like that. But I still want to do it because it kind of gives me that feeling of, hey, I want to be part of it. This is excitement. Something that I've kind of lacked for quite a while. 10 years ago, I'd be like, oh, I want to hit a million subscribers. I want to work with The Rock. I want to work with all these American YouTubers. Yeah. The, the question, the answer to everything will always change as I grow older. And it will be for everyone else listening to Definitely across the different seasons in, in life, it's obvious that our priorities shift. So on that note, we also wanted to congratulate you and Michelle on your upcoming little baby thank that you. is due anytime soon. So thank you so much, Jin, for taking the time, squeezing in a little bit of time for Janice and I to have a chat with you this evening on the Explore This podcast. So no thank problem. you so much once again, Jin. Thank no you so problem. Much, Jin. If you've stuck around to the end of this episode, we want to say thank you for exploring with us. And if you don't already, please follow us on Spotify, subscribe on Apple Podcasts, leave us a rating and review, and most importantly, share this episode with your friends. We'd love to hear from you, so you can also connect with us on Instagram using the Instagram handle Explore This Podcast. A-C-T-S-P-L-O-R-E This Podcast. New episodes for Explore This drops every Monday at 8pm. See you then!